Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim and I work at Prospect Magazine. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by Ruth Diermond. She's a senior lecturer at the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. And she's the military analyst on our Ukraine panel, which you can find on the Prospect website. The panel is a committee of expert commentators that we've assembled who write regularly on the economic, diplomatic and military ramifications of the war in Ukraine. Um, In her first three columns, Ruth has made it clear that Putin's war in Ukraine is not going to plan. Within a month, I think the last figure is seven Russian generals have been killed and up to 15,000 Russian troops. An extraordinary number, if that is indeed um, correct. The army has failed to capture almost any of Ukraine's major cities and reportedly Russia has resorted to asking China for help with military equipment. We've also seen the spectacle of... Syrian troops, Assad's mercenaries going over to Ukraine to fight for Russia. Most recently in the news, we've just seen, according to the investigative journalism outlet Bellingcat, that the Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich, as well as two Ukrainian delegates, apparently had symptoms consistent with poisoning at peace talks in Kiev uh, earlier in March. Further negotiations involving a recovered Abramovich are ongoing in Istanbul today. So what does this mean for Ukraine? What will Russia's next move be? And could a peace deal possibly be on the horizon? The picture feels incredibly murky right now, but luckily we've got Ruth here to shed some light. Ruth, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So in your last piece for Prospect, you argue that it's too early to say that Ukraine is winning the war, but in many ways Russia has already lost. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. I think in really every way that counts, uh, Russia has already lost this war. Um, If we think about the reasons that Putin and the people around him gave for starting the war in the first place, they said that they wanted to denazify Ukraine, which was obviously a grotesque lie. Um, They wanted to stop genocide in eastern Ukraine, which was obviously another lie. Um, But then their focus was really on Ukraine's relationship with uh, the West, and in particular with NATO. And also, um, there was a preoccupation with NATO more generally. So what Putin said uh, he wanted was to make sure that Ukraine never joined NATO, that it promised never to join NATO, um, that NATO stayed completely out of Ukraine, but also that the kind of strategic map of Europe was reset to the world before NATO enlargement in in the late 90s. Um, He wasn't saying that states should leave NATO, but that um, all the troops that had come from the kind of traditional, if you like, NATO states and are now based um, 
in in the new NATO states, they would move back. Um, and, you know, basically that NATO would be weakened as, as a security force in Europe. And instead, we've seen the precise opposite of that. We've seen a huge increase in uh, the, the troop presence in the, the frontline states, uh, the states closest to Ukraine and Russia. Um, at the NATO summit uh, last week, we saw a commitment to increase that even more. Uh, we can see that previously neutral states like Sweden and Finland are now talking about joining NATO. So if one of the primary aims was to, to weaken NATO, to divide NATO, uh, to turn the clock back, actually, as I say, the, the opposite has happened. This, this war has made NATO more cohesive, stronger, and potentially larger. But then, of course, there's, there's the other issue, which is that, um, you know, the objective was to remove the leadership of Ukraine, to discredit the leadership of Ukraine. And again, the opposite has happened. Uh, the, the Ukrainian leadership is still in place. They seem to be doing a much better job in all sorts of ways than uh, the Russian government is doing. Um, and the Russian armed forces have been exposed as a, as a kind of deeply inadequate military force of a kind that Russia had in the 1990s, but that it had spent billions of dollars reforming, supposedly. So, so Russia has been exposed as a kind of militarily inadequate, really, state. Um, you know, its political objectives haven't been met, and NATO is stronger than ever. Uh, so whatever happens on the ground from now, I think, I don't see how Russia can win. Do you think that Putin wanted to, you know, take over the whole of Ukraine? I mean, it's a big country with lots of people in it. Um, and as we've seen, quite a strong resistance. I mean, was this idea that, did he really think that Ukrainians would welcome Russian soldiers with flowers and, um, you know, want the takeover? Well, this is one of the great mysteries of, of this war. Um, the other is why start it at all, because there was no obvious trigger for it. But yes, I mean, it, if you talk to really most of the the experts on Russia or on Ukraine, those kind of domestic experts, foreign policy experts um, in Britain, in the US, elsewhere in Europe and, and in Russia itself, nobody expected um, this war to happen. Um, I think only some of the, the kind of military analysts who were just looking at where the forces were arrayed prior to the start of the conflict, only they thought that the war might go ahead. And the reason why none of us thought this war would actually happen, even a few days before it did, was that it seemed totally unwinnable from that point of view, that you have the, the largest country, I think, um, entirely in Europe, with a population of over 40 million people, and a long history of resistance to to invasion, um, to unpopular governments. And there have been you know, two uh, overthrowings of uh, pro-Russian governments in uh, the last 15 years. And so you know, that just didn't seem like a recipe for a successful invasion. It, it, it didn't seem possible um, that, that Russia could invade the whole of Ukraine, um, remove the government and install a puppet government um, and then simply leave and it would all be fine. Um, but clearly Putin did think that and, and 
that, as I say, is one of the real mysteries of this, why he got this so catastrophically wrong when it seemed to almost every other observer to be impossible. Um, in, even if Russia does ultimately manage to remove Zelensky and install a pro-Russian president, that's not going to be sustainable in the long term um, because we can see the levels of, of resistance in Ukrainian society. They simply wouldn't tolerate that. So, um, so that, again, it's hard to see a kind of way out for Putin from all of this. And do you think he underestimated the NATO response and the international response more more generally? Because although, of course, you know, you know, Article Five is not triggered and we are not at war with Russia, the economic sanctions have been pretty tough, haven't they? Yeah, I think he underestimated it in all sorts of ways, and I think. I mean, we don't know, of course, but I would be surprised if he uh, would have decided to invade Ukraine had he seen this as as a realistic possibility, this degree of Western cohesion. So we've seen, as I say, this significant increase in troop presence, huge uh, quantity of, of kind of military aid going to Ukraine, more on the way, and then very tough sanctions. But I think in a way it's understandable that Putin made this uh, error because He'd been here before with, with smaller conflicts, admittedly. Um, but in 2008, the Russian government effectively provoked Georgia into starting a war in its breakaway region of South Ossetia, um, which gave the Russian military an excuse to come in as so-called peacekeepers. Um, and, and there were kind of mild um, reproaches, if you like, from, from the West, but nothing really substantial. And then in 2014, uh, Russia annexed Crimea, uh, started its proxy war in uh, eastern Ukraine. And again, I mean, there was condemnation. Russia was kicked out of the G8, as it then was. Um, there were other kind of diplomatic sanctions. And then there were economic sanctions, but not of this kind, this broad and deep kind that we've seen. So in a sense, you can understand him thinking, well, you know, I've done this before and there haven't really been major sanctions. So there's no reason to think it will happen this time. And of course, I think central to this as well is is the fact that Putin's view and, and the view of people around him um, is that the West is in decline, is weak, is divided, is being brought down by you know, social liberalism and culture wars and all the kinds of stuff that we hear him talking about. Um, and that therefore, they simply wouldn't, Western states, European states, NATO, simply wouldn't be strong enough um, or committed enough to actually stand up to Russia over Ukraine. And so that has, I think, caught the Russian government hugely by surprise. And what about the Ukrainians? I mean, did they see this coming? And we've, we've seen that there are these peace talks apparently happening, some sense of negotiations. Is it a realistic possibility that a deal could be done and um, the war could, could, could end soon, sooner rather than later? I mean, in terms of um, whether the Ukrainians saw it coming, I, I think, again, the indications are that they weren't really expecting this conflict in, in the way that it happened. Um so they have been having to, to catch up, as it were, um, in that respect. In, in terms of the peace talks, um, 
I, I would be sceptical simply because we've seen before that uh, that the Russian government has used peace talks as a way to kind of buy time um, to to reinforce itself militarily so that it can then uh, simply go back to fighting the war it wants to fight. Um, and certainly the earlier rounds of peace talks, there don't seem to have been any serious attempts on the Russian side um, to reach agreement. Now, it's being reported, you know, just today, um, that the Russian government are saying, or at least one of the Russian negotiators is saying that um, they are going to effectively scale down or suspend um, their military operation against Kiev, the, the capital, which, if it's true, would be hugely significant. But um, does this mean that the Russian government really intends to, to do a peace deal with Ukraine right now? I I don't see it. Um, and I think there's also the really fundamental problem that they can't agree. Oh, it's very hard to see how they can agree um, on a settlement because the... the, the both Ukraine and Russia have entertained the idea of Ukraine becoming a neutral state. Uh, but that would mean that the um, whole Ukrainian territory would have to be free of non-Ukrainian troops. And for Russia, that means basically that NATO would never be on Ukrainian territory. But of course, there are Russian troops on what re Ukraine regards as its territory as well. So for Ukraine to be a, a neutral state free of any uh, kind of foreign military presence, that would require, I think, um, from the Ukrainian point of view, Russia to entirely withdraw from, from the Donbass and from Crimea. And Russia is never going to do that. Um, Russia has had a military presence in Crimea for the whole post-Soviet period. It's not going to give that up. So I... Uh, I struggle to see how they can agree on that. I don't see really that they're likely to agree on the status of Crimea and Luhansk and Donetsk, although it's possible that they may find a, a formula around some degree of autonomy. We don't know. But then there's also the, the final problem, which is that um, all of this would be based on the idea of security guarantees. And... You know, Russia and the West have given Ukraine security guarantees before uh, when Ukraine signed the Budapest Memorandum in, in the 1990s. Um, and indeed, Russia in uh, 1997 signed the Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation with Ukraine that recognised Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. And it's ignored both of those treaties. So I'm not sure that Ukraine would trust Russia to keep its word this time. So that's going to be a huge obstacle to any kind of agreement as well. And what about the Korean scenario that was uh, floated, I think, by a Ukrainian military intelligence chief saying that, you know, Russia wants to essentially to divide the country and keep it weak, really? Is, is that a possibility? That's, I'm sure, um, very likely to be a, a Russian objective because this is how Russia has acted in, in other states in the, the post-Soviet space. It's one of the, the mechanisms that that Russia has used most frequently to um, retain control over these states. So it's um, done this in Moldova um, and it's done it in Georgia, for instance, the two most obvious cases. In both those states, you, you have a situation where 
breakaway regions exist in a kind of limbo status. They are they're, they're not properly independent, they're not recognised as independent, but they're not under the control of um, of the capital of the state that, that nominally has sovereignty over them. Uh, so, so that kind of scenario is is one that the Russian government is very used to playing out. It it's something that they clearly feel has worked in their favour in the past. So I would assume that yes, you know, in the absence of um, uh, the ability to take over the whole of Ukraine, that would have to be the next most attractive option for them, particularly if it allows them to control some or all of the Ukrainian coast, the Black Sea coast, particularly the bit that would allow them to link up Crimea to, to Russia itself. Um, so that's very likely to be something that they want to do, but I can't see at the moment at least the, the Ukrainian government agreeing to that. And just in terms of its military tactics, um, I mean, we see on the news horrifying uh pictures of, you know, Mariupol and various other, and other cities, um, you know, the carpet bombing of cities and civilians being killed. And this has happened before, and, uh, you know, Grozny and Aleppo and various other Russian interventions. But militarily, does that, um, what the kind of tactic, what does that tactic mean? Does it mean that they don't have enough troops to take the city? Or is it that they just would prefer to lay waste to something first before going in? Um, if I'm a military point of view, what's the logic of it? Well, I think it's both, really. I mean, it, it certainly indicates that they are unable to do what they clearly wanted to do initially, which was to go into the key cities quickly and um, take political control of them. Um, and in the absence of being able to do that, then, of course, um, fighting inside cities on the ground is um, extremely risky, uh, runs um, the what more than the risk. It's, it creates the likelihood of very, very high casualties. Um, and, you know, you add into that the fact that clearly the Ukrainian population and its armed forces are highly motivated to resist. And that makes, I think, a kind of land invasion of most of these cities a deeply unattractive prospect. So then the solution to that, it seems, if you're the Russian armed forces, um, as you say, what they've done in, in Grozny and um, in Syria in the past, um, the solution is to to try to destroy the cities without actually going in on the ground as far as possible. So to use missile strikes in particular, um, which will weaken um, the capacity of the Ukrainians to resist both because it will... Um, cause heavy losses in the armed forces, but also the I think the idea is to to weaken Ukrainian morale, and and that is something that doesn't seem to have been successful. We don't actually know what the scale of Ukrainian military losses are. It's something that they're understandably keeping very close to their chest, but we, we can only assume that Ukrainian military losses have been very very high. But nevertheless, this hasn't produced. It seems. Um, a desire on the part of Ukrainian cities to to give up and to allow the Russians in. I and mean, how is this then playing back in Russia? I mean, we don't know really how much the Russian people have access to this information, but clearly if the figures are right and 15,000 Russian soldiers have died, that you can't keep that secret. I mean, so is there a danger then for Putin that this unpopular war makes him unpopular? 
in the short term, that doesn't seem to have happened. But again, it's very, very hard to tell because, well, firstly, you know, the, the Russian government has tried its best to cut off um, all sources of outside information um, to the, the Russian population. So, so the images that we're seeing and the information that we're getting, we don't think the Russian population in general are getting. There are indications that there's there are reasonably high levels of support for the war, um, but as lots of people have pointed out, you know, in an authoritarian state in wartime, you're not going to get reliable polling. Like people are going to tell pollsters what they want to hear, by and large. Um, so we're not really sure what the level of support for the conflict is. Um, we've seen protests, but it's mostly younger people in the kind of key urban areas. In the longer term, though, as you say, um, large numbers of casualties are going to have an effect on um, the popularity of the war, we have to assume. I mean, this was certainly the case in relation um, to the Soviet-Afghan war, which was ultimately one of the things that helped to bring about the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was the case in the first Chechen war, which was one of the things that really caused Boris Yeltsin, the first Russian president, to become as unpopular as he did. Um, and, you know, however much the Russian government attempts to cover up uh, the, the fatalities and the injuries and the number of soldiers taken prisoner or who have deserted, in the end, you know, communities know when people don't come back home. You know, families know if their son or their father um, hasn't come home or has come home badly wounded. Um, and the next door neighbours will know that and the people... Um, this person had worked with will know that. And so information will spread um, at a kind of societal level. And ultimately, that's going to be, I would have thought, very damaging to to Putin's popularity and, and obviously to the willingness of the Russian population to tolerate the war. But that's going to take time because, of course, at this stage, you know, we're only just over a month in. It's very possible that a lot of the people who actually have lost brothers and sons and fathers still don't know. All they know is that they can't get in touch with them. Um, it's going to take some time, I think, before the scale of the losses really start to filter through to the Russian public. What are the chances of NATO being dragged into a war? I mean, we saw President Biden, whether it was off the cuff or deliberate, saying, you know, Putin cannot remain in power, which I imagine obviously didn't go down very well in Moscow. But in this kind of situation, the dangers of escalation are obviously um, um, quite high, aren't they? I think it's obviously something that NATO is being very, very careful to avoid. As things stand, I don't see the war widening to pull in NATO, um, but particularly after having called um, the start of the war so badly wrong, as, as many others did, I'm reluctant to say it's absolutely impossible. I don't think anything is absolutely impossible. But it seems very unlikely. I don't think anybody wants a wider conflict. I very, very much doubt that the Russian armed forces do. Um, and we can see clearly that NATO doesn't. So, uh, so far, the, you know, people are taking care to avoid escalating the war. And, and this is why, for example, the idea of a no-fly zone um, was ruled out, because that would have clearly escalated the conflict, would have pulled NATO directly into a war with Russia. But because there is this potential, um, however remote, but, but still there, 
for a conflict between Russia and NATO to escalate to a nuclear conflict, everyone is being cautious about this. Now, what Biden said was very unwise, I think. It was clearly off the cuff. And his advisers and you know the White House have been pretty quick to try to walk it back. Um, so Biden has form for this. Uh, he did it shortly after he became president uh, when he told a journalist that he had called Putin a killer to his face, um, which I think was not helpful then. It, there's this desire, I think, on his part to show that he's standing up for Putin. Um, I'm not sure it will make a significant difference. If it does, of course, the, the most likely thing, I think, is that it will simply um, increase the stakes of the war for Putin. But the stakes are already so high because he can't really, I think, now step down from office. It's very hard to see a way that he, he kind of gives up office voluntarily. Because that was already the case, I'm not sure that Biden's comments about um, Putin not remaining in power will make much difference. But to the extent they make a difference, it won't be a helpful one. Yeah, we saw reports yesterday that Roman Abramovich and had you know, apparently been poisoned during peace negotiations. Um, I think the US government seems to be downplaying that. And, and is that part of a wider thing that, you know, for example, if there's, a, if there's an outright chemical attack against civilians in Ukraine, that puts uh, NATO and the West in quite a tricky position, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does, because they have said clearly that they they will act. They have been very vague about how they will act. Um, but clearly, I, I don't think it's possible for them to do nothing if there's a, a chemical attack inside um, inside Ukraine, you know, let alone a, a say a tactical nuclear one so so because that kind of event requires a reaction they are going to be as careful as possible to make sure a that it has happened and and b to try to kind of limit the implications of it if you like so so the the issue around the, the alleged poisoning is all very murky i think um abramovich's um, people originally confirmed it and then retracted that confirmation. So we're not quite sure what happened or who's prepared to admit to what. I think it's different from a, a, you know an attack on Ukrainian civilians, which would be much harder to deny. It would be public, um, and so there would you know kind of pretending it hasn't happened would be very, very difficult. But this kind of alleged poisoning incident is extremely strange, um, seems to have been, from what we can tell, or from what's being reported, not done with the intention to kill any of the individuals. It's being reported that <clears throat> the levels of poison suggest that the intention was to frighten them, perhaps to coerce them, but, but not to kill. Um, we just don't know enough about it at this stage, uh, but it is, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly an alarming development. You used a phrase there which has um, come up quite a lot in the last uh, few weeks, tactical nuclear weapon. What exactly does that mean? What's the difference between a tactical nuclear attack and just a straightforward nuclear attack? So, so, so tactical nuclear weapons are designed to be used on the battlefield. Um, they are supposed to be kind of limited in their effects. 
hence the name, um, rather than kind of strategic nuclear weapons. Um, so, so the kind of nuclear weapons that we're used to thinking of, um, the intercontinental ballistic missile um, nuclear weapons, are designed to hit um, other countries. So, you know, they would be designed to be launched from Russia to strike the UK or the US um, or, or, or from the US to strike Russia. Um, what's been talked about potentially are, are smaller, much smaller nuclear weapons designed to be used on the battlefield to create effects actually on the battlefield itself rather than to to attack um, the capital city of another country. Now, you know, in a sense, um, I think my esteemed colleague, Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, has said that all nuclear weapons are strategic. They have strategic effects. Um, so even tactical nuclear weapons have much wider consequences. And, and I think that would certainly be the case here, that you know, Russia couldn't simply use a kind of battlefield nuclear weapon and not expect there to be an escalation, um, an escalatory response from the West. That's that's not something um, that they could realistically hope to get away with. And one has to assume, certainly hope, that they're aware of that. And what's Putin's way out? And do we um, do we need to give him one? Well, I think on that second point, the very important thing to say here is that it's not really up to us, right? Um, this is Ukraine's war. It's a war for survival. Um, it's an existential war for them in the sense that it's it's about the existence of Ukraine, Ukraine's capacity to continue to exist as, as an independent country. Um, and so it's really a matter for them rather than for us. So, you know, giving Putin a way out, um, making concessions, all these things are a matter for the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people. Um, I think it's very regrettable that some analysts and some commentators, particularly in the US, but also in the UK, can talk about the conflict in Ukraine as if it's um, NATO's conflict to decide uh, on, as if Ukraine really is, is just a kind of bit part, a bit actor in its own conflict, its own kind of war for survival. And that's a kind of slightly colonial attitude that's, I think, very, very unfortunate. So, so that will be a question for Ukraine. In terms of um, Putin having a way out, it's very, very hard to see one because he now, I think, has has really boxed himself in, both in terms of domestic politics and internationally. Um, he's really definitively, at least while he's president, I think, cut off Russia from um, normal contact, economic or diplomatic contact with the West. You know, the, the economy is suffering very badly. Um, he started this war saying that all, you know, he has all these aims um, to denazify Ukraine and you know prevent NATO um, uh, moving in and, and turning back the strategic clock to the mid nineties, and he's getting very little, if any, of those things that he wants. Um, so it would be catastrophic for him to back down, I think, but equally catastrophic for him to carry on, uh, and catastrophic too for the armed forces and the security services who one has to assume I'm not going to be prepared to put up with this indefinitely. So I I struggle to see a way out of this for Putin at the moment, honestly. 
Um, and I struggle to see a way out of it for Russia that doesn't involve Putin going, um, which is not to say I'm advocating a kind of Biden-style call for regime change. It's just that it's it's really hard to see a way out while Putin is still in power. And do you think the most likely scenario is popular protests in Russia that will bring him down? Or is it just a question of, you know, powerful people around him, you know, tapping him on the shoulder or you know, something a bit more um, tougher than that and just saying, you know, OK, off you go. It's a, Again, we're in uncharted territory, so it's very, very hard to say. Um, and things always seem unimaginable until they've actually happened. But at the moment, given the levels of, of, kind of control over uh, information and the levels of, of kind of punishment being handed out, the protesters, it, it's hard to see, at least in the short or medium term, um, Putin's removal coming from uh, popular protest. Although in the longer term, that's I'm sure that's possible. Um, at the moment, so in the short, in the immediate term, uh, it's also hard to see him being kind of unseated by angry members of the Russian military or um, the Russian intelligence services. But in the longer term, or at least the medium term, I guess that's perhaps the most likely outcome because you know, if, if the war continues to be the kind of disaster that it's, it has been, then the Russian military and the Russian intelligence services are not going to have the capacity to sustain that indefinitely. So they are going to have to start thinking about a way out. Um, if, as we've seen, uh, Putin is trying to shift all the blame for this war onto senior and, and less senior individuals in the FSB, in the, the Russian military, then again, you have to wonder how long they're going to tolerate that. So if there, if there were to be um, a, a change of president in Russia, uh, I think it would probably have to, at least in the short term, come from those around him. Uh, what the mechanics of that would be, I wouldn't really like to speculate. Um, so it, we're in unknown territory and it's just it's extremely difficult to tell at this stage. Putin doesn't seem to be going anywhere, but equally, I, I don't see how his position is sustainable in the long term now, unless they can get something really kind of substantial out of um, this conflict, which also doesn't look tremendously likely at the moment. Ruth, we're hearing reports that uh, Putin may well be um, withdrawing troops from around Kiev. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, and whether those reports and, and whether we should trust them or not? Yeah, so, so we don't know. I mean, all of this is occurring in the context of this new round of um, peace negotiations. I, I'm not aware that we've seen any evidence on the ground that's actually happening. What we've seen in recent days reportedly is uh, that Russian troops have kind of dug in around Kyiv. So it's not clear if they actually are going to be pulled out. Um, I don't see any obvious reason why we should take the Russian um, government or the Russian negotiator at their word at this stage. Now, if if they do withdraw forces from around um, the Ukrainian capital, then that would clearly suggest, A, that they've recognised the limits of what they can do. Um, it would be a pretty major kind of admission of failure, I think. 
Um, but but B, there's not necessarily a guarantee that that they would, you know, stay um, away, that they wouldn't come back at a later stage. Um, so I think we have to be extremely cautious about how we treat this information. I mean, we, we've hit with every kind of round of negotiations, we've heard all sorts of kind of offers and counter offers and claims being made, uh, very few of which actually turn out to be correct in reality. So I think at, at this stage, we should be very cautious about taking this at face value and, and, and wait to see what actually happens on the ground. Thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed for having me. And that's all from us. Thank you so much to Ruth for joining us. And thank you all very much for tuning in to hear the discussion. If you enjoyed the podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of the new issue of Prospect available on newsstands now or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk. You can get three issues for just £5. Our latest issue features writing from Alex von Tunzelon on the Royals and Emily Maitlis's diary. You can also visit the website where you can read Ruth's excellent columns and the other members of our Ukraine panel. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of Prospect Podcast.